Good morning. One quick announcement. I want to ask if you consider Calvary Chapel Gateway here, your home church family as your pastor, I just want to respectfully ask if you would allow a little bit of additional attention at the end of the concluding worship song of this morning's uh, service. There's going to be an additional video segment there in which I give some explanation and guidance regarding our intentions for reopening the church uh, for in-person gatherings. So if you could give your attention to that at the remainder of the service and remember to do that, that would be greatly appreciated. So that'll be after the concluding worship song of this morning's worship service. If you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Galatians together. And this morning we'll pick up in verse 25. We've already covered down through verse 24 in the midst of our last two studies together. So we're going to go from Galatians 5, verse 25, down through chapter 6, verse 6. And if you're turned to Galatians 5, let me read our text. It says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another." For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now as we continue in our worship for the help of your Holy Spirit to understand the truths of the word of God here in this portion of scripture. And that as always, you would prepare us in the way that only you can and that you would now speak to us through the power and the person and ministry of your Holy Spirit. Let us hear your voice, Lord. Speak to us this day from the scripture, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you were to follow around a Christian who was living right spiritually and perhaps even taking some video footage of them, what types of things would you be able to identify and see them doing? In other words, what does a truly spiritual person look like in their daily living? Or what would the spiritual person look like in the way they function among the church family? Well, this next section illustrates, I think, some aspects of spiritual living from God's standpoint. We might say God kind of identifies to a degree here, not exhaustively, but gives us some insight of what that spirit-filled or person who is living in a right way spiritually actually is going to look like. Remember the background in this section, Paul's now instructing in a practical way followers of Jesus Christ how to actually live out their Christian experience, how as God's children who've received his Holy Spirit, who have the power of the Holy Spirit to now live differently than we once did when we were under the control of our sinful flesh, how we can live our lives directed by the Spirit of God's power and letting the Holy Spirit be the one who rules us from within and who guides the way that we think and behave and speak. 
And in this section now, we'll take note here in our verses of some things that reveal what the spiritual person should be characterized by. And now some of these kind of came to me in somewhat of a statement or outline form. So if you're a note taker, you can kind of jot some of these things down. It doesn't always come to me this way in preparing. But uh, here I see sort of some characteristics of what the spiritual person will look like from these verses. The first thing we take note of here in verse 25 is this, is that the spiritual person is one who submissively allows their life to be directed by the Holy Spirit. Again, the spiritual person is one who submissively allows their life to be directed by the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So Paul here does two things. He reminds us of a spiritual reality, and then he exhorts us to respond properly in light of that spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is stated in the first part of verse 25, where he says there, notice in the text, if, or the idea could also be since, in other words, since this is true, that's the idea there, since we live in the Spirit. In other words, when we exercised our faith, to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior for our sins and let him become the Lord over our life. The Bible teaches, we've talked about, a conversion, a major change happened in our spiritual condition. That is the very Spirit of God himself entered inside of our life, made us come alive spiritually unto God. We now have a consciousness of God, the ability to to have a relationship with God. We come awake or alive spiritually on the inside. The Spirit of the Lord causes us to become God's child, literally in a biblical sense, and gives us the power to now live in relationship with God by that new nature within. Romans chapter 8 tells us this, Now the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that is our spirit internally, that we are children of God. So, Again, we've been brought into touch with the realm of the Spirit. That is, when we got saved and accepted Jesus Christ, receiving him, we were made alive as the Spirit of God entered inside of us, and we've now come into direct experience with the realm of the Spirit of God. We're able to now live spiritual lives, able to function in the spiritual realm. We're in direct connection now with the Spirit of God himself who's actually residing and living within us. So we now have the inward ability to live in accordance with the things of the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here. Again, Romans 8 says it this way. Let me read to you from Romans 8, sort of an exhaustive, uh, longer explanation of this same thing. Romans 8 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but now in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And then Paul says, therefore, we're debtors. That is, we're obligated not to live according to the flesh anymore, but we now have an obligation to live according to the Spirit himself who's come into our lives made us alive unto God, and helps us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So, again, 
Paul says, since we now live in this realm of the Holy Spirit and we're able to live in the realm of the Spirit in direct connection to the Spirit of God who lives in us, he now says, therefore, we should respond properly to that. That's why he says, verse 25, if we do, since we do live in the Spirit, he says, let us, in light of that, responsively also walk in the Spirit. Now, the word walk in the Bible always refers to your way of life. That is your manner of living, your lifestyle. It implies a direction. That's what happens when you walk. You walk in a particular direction. It speaks of steps that you take. That's what happens when you walk. You take steps consciously in a particular direction. It refers to allowing our life to be led by the Holy Spirit in the direction that we're being taken in and in the steps that we are taking in our daily decisions and in our lifestyle. So walking in the Spirit speaks of being directed by the Holy Spirit in what we pursue, in what we participate in doing, allowing the Spirit to guide the steps of our daily lives and our decisions and following the Spirit's lead to rule over our manner of living and to lead us in the direction that we ought to go to live pleasing to God. It speaks of kind of walking in a cooperative way with the Spirit. Uh, again, Amos says to us, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? So that's the idea. Is we're, we're walking in agreement with the Spirit, letting Him lead the way, but walking in the same direction and towards the same destination He wants to go, which is to live a life pleasing unto God. So we're listening to the Holy Spirit when we walk in the Spirit. We're yielding to what the Holy Spirit is directing me to do or not to do because we're living in consistency with the Spirit as we live under his influence. Now, when we think about walking, again, walking is a voluntary choice. You can choose not to walk. You can choose to sit down and not walk. You can choose to stop walking or to stand still and be obstinate and refuse to walk in a particular direction. So when the Bible speaks of walking and certainly walking in partnership or relationship with someone else, you're choosing to cooperate. You're making a conscious decision to take the same path as someone else. And if you're letting them take the lead, as we should be with the Spirit of God, it requires humility and submission to the other to let them lead to the destination in which you are heading in. So in light of these things and what's being conveyed in this verse simply is that the spiritual life is about submissively allowing my life to be led by the Spirit of God. That is not being self-willed as a person anymore, but letting the Spirit lead me and submitting and yielding myself to how the Spirit wants to lead in my life, not refusing to obey or yield to the promptings or the conviction or direction of the Holy Spirit within, but instead submissively complying to what the Spirit's directing me to do, whether it lines up with my feelings or my perspectives or, or, or my attitudes, that no, I let the Spirit direct me and I yield submissively to what he's guiding to do. Again, the Bible warns us of multiple things, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible warns us not to resist the Holy Spirit. And we can do all of those things in making that mistake, and different things can cause us to do that. It could be fear that causes us to do that. It could be a, a worry about giving up control over our life because we're so used to being in control and being self-willed. It could just be a rebellious spirit or an attitude of pride or stubbornness. Many different things can cause us to grieve or quench or resist the spirit. 
But we're not supposed to do that uh, because in so doing that, we are harming and hindering our spiritual quality of life and not doing what God desires of us, but kind of stubbornly taking our own path instead of walking in the spirit the way that God would desire us to. So we want to learn how to live more submissively to the spirit because the spiritual person, the spiritual man or woman lives in submission to the spirit of God. Next, we take note of in verse 26 that the spiritual person will seek also to live in an attitude of humility. The spiritual person will seek to live in an attitude of humility. Look what he says in verse 26. Let us not become conceited, he says, provoking one another, envying one another. Now notice Paul here including himself in the caution because he says, let us. So he's concluding himself here, and he warns of a mistake of spiritual pride that in turn can cause stumbling in the welfare of our spiritual walk, or it can cause stumbling in the spiritual walks of others. Sometimes as we seek to walk in the spirit, which we should, and that's a good thing, sometimes as we're seeking to be more spiritual and godly and fruitful for the Lord, which we should, sometimes God knows we can potentially even develop a wrong motivation in those very things, where our motivation to walk in the spirit or be spiritual can actually become a little bit distorted, and that is never a healthy thing for us or for others. So Paul says here in our verse, he says, let us. He's saying, look, we're all prone to this. We should walk in the Spirit, but he's saying, let us, all being prone to this mistake, not become, he says, conceited. The word conceited there speaks of being excessively proud in oneself. Phillips translates it this way, let us not become ambitious, for our own reputation spiritually. Again, certainly we should all want to grow spiritually. Certainly we should all want to see more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and develop in greater godliness. Certainly we should all want to walk in the Spirit to greater degrees. However, the Bible's warning us here, we want to be careful because that also can become a snare if our desire to do such becomes a little bit misguided whereby we allow in some subtle way the subtle danger of pride within us of wanting to grow spiritually to almost impress other people around us in some way or wanting to grow spiritually or be spiritual and we become puffed up with pride over our seeming accomplishment spiritually. And we actually kind of take note of our spiritual achievements in a way a little bit more than we should. And as we start to experience measures of spiritual success, and maybe we start to become fruitful spiritually in our walk, we can easily all become a little spiritually arrogant in our own spiritual achievements, even as Christians. We can kind of get a little bit of an inflated ego and view of ourselves where we think maybe we're a little more special than other Christians around us. Or maybe we think we're a little more spiritual or important or holy, and before you know it, you can start to start taking glory for the good things that God's doing in your life and the changes and maybe the way God's using you in some way, and you start to think maybe you actually have some merit or deserve a little credit for those kind of things. And, and that kind of results in kind of becoming like a little bit snobbish spiritually sometimes. And maybe a little self-righteous in your attitude on occasion. Sometimes we can even start to kind of like 
almost sort of show off a little bit spiritually sometimes, uh, kind of maybe in the way we talk or the things we're bragging about that are happening in our lives or what God's doing with us and, and using our spiritual life almost as an effort to kind of like impress people in the same way people try and impress people with worldly things. We can kind of almost try and impress people spiritually. And that's not a good or a healthy thing. We can end up kind of boasting or bragging. And so he says here, look, let us be careful that we don't become conceited even in spiritual things because he says the problem is if we do that, verse 26, he says, is then we can start provoking one another and envying one another. Now, now the idea there of provoking speaks to challenge or compete with. The idea is we start to instigate competition in the things of the spiritual life with fellow believers. And look, the legalist, which Paul's been warning about in this letter, or the self-righteous person who's trying to establish their spirituality and their righteousness by what they do or what they don't do, the tendency with that is they begin to have a carnal competition that develops within their heart, that they want to see themselves above other people spiritually as more righteous or more holy or more dedicated to the Lord because of what they do that others don't or what things they don't do that others are willing to do. And it kind of generates this distorted sense of provoking people to try and become as godly as they are or provoking people to try and be spiritual in the way that they deem themselves spiritual, kind of priding themselves on the fact that they're better than others, and kind of always making people aware of their spiritual superiority. And that's never a healthy thing where the legalist begins to do that, kind of focusing on the weaknesses or problems of others and trying to exalt themselves as spiritual over others. The spiritually proud person will use things like that, guilt, and try and make people try and rise up to their level by guilt and condemnation and things they say. But the spiritual person won't do that. The spiritual person will walk in humility and supply guidance by just living out their life and letting their example have the influence upon others to encourage them uh, if they would so choose to kind of follow the example of the one who's just walking in humble love towards the Lord. Now, from another angle, he says in our verse here, we don't want to begin envying one another either. So I don't want to provoke people, but we also don't want to start envying the good things God's doing in someone else's life, where we actually, as a Christian, kind of like start to get frustrated because we see God working in someone else's life. And we actually start kind of envying and being frustrated and being covetous. And we then start striving in spiritual things because we're trying to compete with someone else. And that's not good either. We need to just humbly walk with the Lord and let the love of Christ be what compels us in what we do and how we serve the Lord. So next thing he mentions to us coming into chapter 6 now, verse 1, is that another thing we see is the spiritual person is interested in graciously restoring those who have failed. Again, the spiritual person is interested in graciously restoring those who have failed. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are, notice the term, spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So Paul speaks here of how the spiritual person will prove that condition in their life by pursuing, notice, restoration rather than condemnation 
with the brother or sister who has failed in some way. He speaks in verse 1 here of someone being overtaken in any trespass. And the language in the Greek there that's used refers to how an animal would get accidentally caught in a trap that had been set out there and it accidentally got itself caught in the trap. In other words, implying here the language, the idea is wandering, someone gets off track spiritually and they get ensnared in something by failing morally and doing something that they wish they had not done, but they got themselves in a trap. They got ensnared. The emphasis being in that it does not speak this term here of the person who's willfully and deliberately being defiant against God. The person who kind of is just in a you know careless way acting in willful disobedience, selfishly, defiantly making choices to backslide against the Lord. That's not what this verse is referring to. It's referring to the person who's erred, who's kind of had the, the spiritual auto accident they weren't planning on having. But they, they got off track in their weakness. They, they made some mistakes and they had, if you would, a situation where they were faced with temptation to sin and they kind of lost the battle with temptation and they became overtaken in that temptation and they kind of caved under the pressure and they got themselves entangled by making some sinful mistakes. And now they're bearing the guilt of that and the consequence. And they're a wounded Christian soldier because of their failure and their moral mistake and sinning against the Lord. The question becomes, how do we respond to that person who's failed? How do we handle that fallen Christian soldier? Well, the Bible says God's heart is you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, please take notice of this because God's heart is for compassionate, careful gradual restoration for the person who has failed spiritually. God's heart is for careful, compassionate, gradual restoration. He wants to restore those who have fallen spiritually, who have got themselves entangled in sin. Now, that's good to remember, first of all, for yourself, so that when you or if you do fail spiritually or if you have fallen and kind of erred and been overtaken in some trespass spiritually, that you don't lose hope in your current condition, that you don't become paralyzed in, in self-pity and despair and think God is done with you and he's going to put you on the shelf and that's it and you're off the team forever. That is not the heart of God. The heart of God right there shows you is restoration. God wants to restore even after you failed. Now, it's also important to take notice of that. And remember, that's God's will for those that we see around us at times who do crash, who crash and burn. Just like you come up to an accident scene. You don't come up to an accident scene, I hope not anyway, as a, as a you know, compassionate person. And, and the first thing you care about is who was at fault when you see a wrecked car and wounded people. Hopefully your heart is, look, people need help right now. I need to be compassionate. It doesn't matter whose fault it was or how the mistake happened. It was an accident. And we need to have that attitude as believers as well. When we see those around us who've crashed spiritually, that we go to them with the heart of, look, God's heart is to restore, to help them, to see the wounded individuals who are suffering themselves from their own sin, or maybe they've caused some damage in the lives of other people because of their sin and failure, and know that God's heart is to see them restored and helped and healed, listen, and put back on the team and get them back in the game at some point in time. That is the heart of God. You know, it's interesting. The word that's used here in verse one, restore, restore such a one is actually a medical term. 
And it was a term that referred to the resetting of a broken bone. And you have to, to do that because that's very important. You can't just leave that broken bone neglected. You got to reset it properly for proper healing so it can be used again. And you need to do that carefully and cautiously in, in a sensitive way. It also referred to that term restore to putting a joint back in place that had come out of socket. And again, that's very important to do. And mishandling of an injured person with a broken bone or a joint out of place, if you mishandle that, you can actually make their condition worse. So it's very important that they be attended to, and it's very important that it be done with utmost care and thoughtfulness. And restoring the life of someone who has failed spiritually is the exact same thing. We need to tend to them with an attitude of knowing the heart is healing and restoration, and it needs to be approached with utmost care. It has to be done thoughtfully and purposely, understanding God's heart and seeking to do what we can to be careful in the process to help them, allowing God to bring about the mending and the restoring that he indeed knows is best for them and wants for their life. Now, take notice in verse 1 who the Bible says has qualified to handle this ministry of restoration. God says, restoration is my heart, but notice God quantifies who's the one who should be handling a ministry of restoration. He says there very clearly, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. It's almost as if God is clearly indicating those who are spiritual and in tune with the Holy Spirit, that's who I want helping people who failed. Those who are walking in the Spirit, living under the Spirit's direction. It speaks of the person who's not only spiritually mature, who understands the word of God and the principles of scripture properly, who also understands God's desires towards people and the heart of God towards people. It speaks of needing to be someone who's sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, who's hearing from the Lord regarding that matter and how to assist and help such individuals. This is not something that should be undertaken by someone who's an unspiritual person themselves or who's walking in the flesh and is in a fleshly way going to approach the situation, which could just make things way worse if they're walking in the flesh themselves. It is a delicate matter, and it's an important process to God that he wants to direct. So God says, give me the spiritual man. Give me that spiritual woman who can be led by the Spirit, who's listening to my Holy Spirit, and through them I can facilitate restoration as I guide the process. And look, folks, I can tell you after... You know, many years in pastoral ministry, uh, I can tell you, having been involved in this process many, 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 many times working with people who've stumbled, who've struggled, who've failed, each situation is very different. There is no set pattern in helping people who have failed spiritually. It's not a black and white, cut and dry thing. You have got to be able to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit and prayerfully and carefully let God guide uniquely each situation. Because each matter, each person, the dynamics are different, the situation is different, and you got to work with people according to their unique temperament and what has happened, and what their situation involves, and know how to listen to the Spirit to guide the process and the timing and the approach. So it's very important that we seek the Lord and be under the influence of the Spirit to help in restoration. And in light of that, that's why he says at the end of the verse there, notice how restoration is to be done. He says it's to be done, verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. What did we learn the last time together? That part of the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
And he also mentioned what? Gentleness. That spirit of gentleness like Christ has. So in an attitude and an approach of gentleness, that's how we approach restoration and working with those who have failed. You got to have compassion. You have to be willing to have patience with people and a willingness to give them time and extend some latitude in grace and not this hardcore cut and dry, what's the matter with you and and throwing the book at them. That's not going to work. When somebody's crushed and and dealing with their own guilt and they've made a mess, if it is not done in gentleness, you are going to crush someone's spirit and cause them spiraling away into even worse problems and let the devil get a hold of them and completely shipwreck them. You must do it in a spirit of gentleness, the Bible says. Some of the greatest examples that I think are looking to the life of Jesus. Look in John chapter 8, how Jesus dealt with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Tremendous gentleness. Look in John chapter 21 as Jesus restores Peter after his failure. It was done with wisdom and incredible gentleness. And notice he says the end of the verse that we're also to do such in an attitude of proper personal assessment. You see what he says, the last part of the verse? He says, do this restoration considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Now this is important. We need to realize when we're helping someone who has failed that we have to do it with a proper assessment of our own lives, realizing I am prone to the exact same mistake that they made. And just as they failed, I have the same capacity to fail in the same manner in my own life. I have the potential to be overtaken in a trespass just like them. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And when you're helping someone who has failed and who has erred, you have to be very sensitive to this reality as well because you have to be careful that you don't begin to let your guard down in temptation yourself when you're helping someone else who has failed because you can slip into a mistake where you let your own guard down and fall prey to temptation yourself as you're helping someone else who has already failed and fallen into sin their self. This can happen by just perhaps as you're dealing with them, you're being exposed to some maybe heavy stuff or some pretty you know difficult things to hear about. And if you're not careful, you can get yourself under real mistake because you become exposed to some of the things that connect to the sin and the mistake they've made. And all of a sudden you go plunging into sin yourself or maybe just in anger or frustration. You know, I can be quite honest to tell you there have been a few times when I've had to deal with situations where people got into some, you know, sinful mistakes and and it's hard sometimes keeping your own emotions in check. And if grievous things have happened, but you can't let your own emotions interfere. You can't become angry or impatient or harsh with people. So he says, "Make sure you consider yourself lest you be tempted." in the process also. Well, moving on, next we see another aspect of the spiritual person is that they demonstrate love for others. Demonstrating love for others by being willing to step in and help those who are struggling to deal with their difficulties. So the spiritual person, out of love, steps in to help those struggling to deal with difficulties. He says, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ we are to live under? Well, it's the law of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13, after Jesus demonstrated love in a form of humble servanthood as he washed the disciples' feet in a very practical way, Jesus then said this, If I then, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So this is what the law of Christ is. He says that we might fulfill the law of Christ. It's the law of love. It's the higher law of the love of Jesus, that love of devotion and demonstration to love in the same manner as our Lord Jesus loved, that we also exercise love towards other people. And he tells us here in verse 2 exactly what that might look like practically. He says, verse 2, here's how you fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Our love should be seen in active help that it supplies to other people around us that need assistance. We're instructed as the Lord's people to bear the burdens of one another. The word burden that's used there speaks of a a heavy weight, something that's difficult to carry, especially on your own. The idea is something that's just an overwhelming thing that a person is bearing up under, and the pressure is hard to remain under that burden all by themselves. It is just an an overload, if you would, weighing them down and hindering them and kind of crippling their ability to keep functioning because it's just an overwhelming heavy burden they're trying to carry. Now, we all know that sometimes we can find ourselves under such hard-to-bear burdens in life in many different forms. Sometimes people can be under a spiritual burden, maybe just the guilt and the grief of failure, as we talked about in verse 1. And it is a heavy burden of just such grief and anguish over a failure and mistake in their life. Maybe it's the burden of spiritual warfare if they're under attack from the devil intensely. Sometimes people can be under just the heavy burden of just a major load of ministry and things they have to do, and the burden is just crushing and weighing down upon them in a season. Sometimes we have emotional burdens in life where people are maybe just heavily burdened with the crushing weight of guilt or the crushing weight of grief. Maybe emotionally they've just gone through a tragedy or the death of a loved one and they are heavily under the crushing burden of heartache and grief or maybe depression or discouragement. Those are heavy burdens. Sometimes anxiety and worry can be crushing emotional burdens on people. And even just physical burdens, sometimes circumstantial things. Maybe somebody's in a real personal hardship in their life right now. And maybe just their circumstances have them in a real hard time. It's an overwhelming task that they're trying to handle or some financial burden. And just physical circumstances can be heavy burdens in people's lives. Well, how do we obey this command to bear the burdens of one another? Well, Let me suggest two things. First of all, and the easiest of all, honestly, and most effective, is intercessory prayer. Is to sincerely take the time to ask God to intervene as the greatest burden bearer to help people with the burden that they're bearing. 24-7, in the most effective way, God's available to help people with their burdens. The Bible even says to cast our burden on the Lord. So we go to intercessory prayer to help bear their burden and say, God, help them strengthen them, comfort them, do what's necessary to lighten the load, Lord, lift the burden, and and we intercessory pray for them to help bear the burden. A second way is, of course, being involved practically. That is, we actually do something. 
we actually, beyond just praying, we actually get engaged to provide practical help in some way. You make some personal investment into their life, that is, you actually sacrifice your time and your effort, and you go to the person, and in a sense, you say, look, let's walk through this together. What can I do? How can I help? Is there some way that I can lighten your load and take some of that burden off of you? And this is often the area, unfortunately, that because we tend to be selfish as people, that we can kind of tend to overlook sometimes. You know, we may be glad to lift up a prayer for somebody, but to have to go beyond that and actually inconvenience ourselves to lift a finger or to go do something or get involved in their life, sometimes that's the area we can overlook. But we're, we're supposed to come alongside one another. Sometimes you've got to help and support and maybe shoulder some of the load. Maybe somebody's going through something really heavy, and you just come to them and you look for a way. What can I do practically? How can I serve, help, do something to alleviate some of the struggle of the weight that you're currently under? That's how we bear people's burdens. And the Bible tells us that the spiritual person fulfilling the law of Christ will lovingly get involved to help people deal with their difficulties. They'll bear the burdens of others. The next thing we see in verses 3 and 4 is the spiritual person also guards himself against a self-righteous attitude that can begin to bring self-deception. He says, verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So Paul warns here against, kind of again, this mistake of beginning to think that as we're doing well spiritually, which we want to do, that's a good thing, or if we start to get used by God and he's really working through our life, that we start to think something special about us or we're superior or maybe we have some kind of now a higher rank spiritually, so much so that look at the direct language he uses there in verse 3. He says, speaking of the person who starts to actually think that they are something. You know, we use that terminology in the world. Boy, you really think you're something, don't you? Uh, and, and he says here, again, in the Bible, you start to think that you're something. You may not say it, but you kind of just start to think that, wow, I, I'm kind of really something. And, and I'm really something spiritually. And God's you know, kind of working in my life. And then he says, with the reality check, he says, when the reality is, you're nothing. <laughs> you think you're something, but he says, when in reality, you are nothing. That is, we may think we're something, but the reality is, from God's perspective, we are nothing but an empty vessel. That the grace of God is just being, you know, flowing through in a special way. And he says, when we think we're something, when in God's perspective, we're truly nothing as a person, he says there, verse 3, pretty strongly, such a man is deceiving himself. That is, it's self-deception that we start to actually believe our own press clippings. And the best antidote, he tells us in verse 4, is just to take an honest evaluation of yourself. He says, look, just examine your own work. Keep focused on your own life. Rejoice when you start to do well. That's a good thing. But he says, rejoice in what God's doing in your life and pay attention to yourself alone and, and not in another. The idea is don't start to become comparative. Well, I'm doing better than this guy and doing better than that person. And that's how you try and be superior 1 Corinthians 4 says, what makes you differ from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Again, all that we have is by the grace of God. And we want to beware of spiritual pride and self-righteousness because that is just as insidious as any other form of sin. 
and it will hinder our spiritual life. And you know how I can tell you that's a certainty is because that was the sin of the devil. Pride, self-exaltation, wanting to be superior in a spiritual sense, that was the very sin of the devil himself. That's how dangerous such can be. Again, the spiritual person can be effectively used by the Lord and yet still walk in an attitude of humility and know that it is only by the grace of God and they deflect the glory to the Lord and they can be used by the Spirit but keep a pure and a humble attitude in the midst of those things. Next, we see going on that the spiritual person in verse 5 understands also the value of being personally responsible for themselves. The spiritual person understands the value of being personally responsible for themselves. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, earlier we were told that we were to help others with their heavy burdens, that we are to assist others that are under crushing burdens. Here we're now instructed that each person is to bear their own load, completely different word used. The word load there is not talking about an overwhelming burden that comes upon a person from time to time, as we all experience. It's it's just referring here to taking responsibility for carrying your own personal load in life as you properly should. In fact, the word load there that's used in the Greek spoke of the cargo loaded onto a ship that was carried to a destination. And that cargo ship was basically created to be able to bear the load of its cargo and to take it from one destination to another without needing the help of another ship to bear its load. It was created to bear that load and to bear that weight, and it was certainly more than able to perform that function to fulfill its purpose. The other implication of that word there, bearing your load, spoke of how a soldier was supposed to carry their own backpack in the military endeavors. You weren't to give your backpack to someone else. You were to carry your own pack, carry your own supplies in the march and in the battle. So the idea here of the verse is simply pulling your own weight, doing your proper part from God's perspective, taking personal responsibility for the things that you should be doing in your life, bearing your own load, faithfully and responsibly carrying the weight of the load that God has given you in your life. And please hear me, receiving help from time to time when you're under a crushing burden, a heavy burden, that's okay. And we need to humbly receive help at times when maybe we are heavily under a tremendous burden and somebody needs to give us a little assistance. And that's fine. However, allowing my life to become a burden on other people because of personal laziness or personal irresponsibility That is not right. That's wrong. That's selfish. And a Christian is not to be marked by laziness, nor by irresponsibility. We're not to be people who are needy and draining. We're not to be people who are burdens to one another or burdens in the culture. We're to be people who are blessings to one another and blessings in the culture. It is wrong for me, for you, to assume, to expect, or further to even allow somebody else to fulfill the roles and responsibilities that God has given me to bear in my load, which are clearly my load and responsibility to take care of. And that applies, look, to the spiritual life. 
I must maintain my own spiritual walk. I got to pick up my own mat and walk with Jesus every day. I, I can't depend on someone else to nurse me along spiritually like a Christian baby and constantly drain from them. I need to learn how Jude says to build myself up in my own holy faith. I need to learn how to walk with Jesus independently and how to take care of my own spiritual load and to walk with the Lord in a healthy and a proper way. And I also should do my own part to bear my load in the body of Christ, that I'm not just becoming a Christian consumer or a Christian customer who just wants to be served and I want good customer service and the church better have good customer service and and I hope everybody ministers to me and I'm here to consume, but that instead, no, I'm a part of the body of Christ. I have a purpose and a part, and my, my part in the body is also to contribute something and to do something to bear my load, to bless others and to serve others. And this also applies to just bearing my own load in life in general, maintaining personal responsibilities. That are, you know, there are clearly marked out areas, folks, that are roles and arenas that I alone should bear my own personal responsibility For example, nobody else can be the husband that I'm supposed to be to my wife. That's my load. That's my role. To make sure that I take care of my wife and treat her properly and and be the husband I'm supposed to be. I have a load as a father and a role and a responsibility to bear that load as a father, as a spiritual leader. Again, we all have a general measure of personal responsibility for our life. We need to be generally responsible as people. To, to do what it takes to work, to pay our own bills, to be responsible, to take care of our own life and bear our own load. The Bible says that he who won't work shouldn't eat. The idea is, again, if you're not willing to work, then, then you don't deserve to partake of somebody else's food who's working and doing their share of the load in life. The spiritual person, out of love and faithfulness and self-control, is someone who's personally responsible. They bear their own load because they know it's what's right before God. And look, let me encourage you. Don't undervalue the practical reality of if there are areas in your life as a Christian that you're not bearing your own load, that you need to get that right before the Lord. He says here, each one should bear his own load. We should be responsible, productive people who do what we should to maintain our own personal responsibilities and not make others carry the load that God wants us to take care of ourselves personally. And finally, the spiritual person we see in verse 6 also is to exercise kindness and appreciation for those who help them spiritually. He says in verse 6, let him who is taught in the word... He says, share in all good things with him who teaches. So he gives an example there of personal responsibility, kind of reflecting there what that looks like, sharing in the support of spiritual leaders or those conveying the word of God. And the term share there in the original language speaks of sharing things in a form of partnership or cooperation. It's that same word koinonia we see in other places in the Bible, where's that mutual sharing. And here he says that's reflected by those who are benefited spiritually by being taught the word of God, who are contributing, in a sense, the pastor teacher, the one teaching, the Bible teacher, giving the word of God to help and contribute their part in a responsible way to assist people to be healthy spiritually. He says in a mutual partnership, those who are helped by being taught the word in the ways of the Lord, he says, should mutually share in all good things 
with him who is teaching. So the idea is to to share in some mutual partnership, some good things in return, so that it's a give and a take, mutual assistance situation. Again, sharing in good things like kind and encouraging words. To, to give perhaps encouragement or to inspire the one who's doing such in a form of teaching ministry that, hey, we appreciate what you're doing or it helped or ministered and just kind, inspiring, encouraging words help, in a sense, return back some of the blessing so that there's that continual encouragement. And of course, as well, it infers to sharing even a financial support, sharing of resources. As First Corinthians chapter 9 speaks about sharing in a way financially to continue to help and substantiate those who are doing such to be fully engaged in doing that to the capacity that they should. The picture here, again, is just that mutual giving and sharing with one another to help everyone continue to achieve greater spiritual health among the body of Christ. So look, let us seek this week ahead to walk in the Spirit to greater and greater degrees. And the way that we can do that very simply by going back and looking at these verses is trying to live out what the Bible instructs that it looks like to truly be a spiritual person.